But let's take our Bibles, if we can, to two places. Romans chapter 13. Stay standing with me. Romans 13 and verse number 8. And then if you would, turn over to 2 Kings chapter number 4. Two places this morning. Romans 13 verse 8 in the New Testament and 2 Kings chapter 4 in the Old Testament. We're looking at a series of sermons right now entitled Dealing with Debt. Dealing with Debt. And we're looking at financial debt. I, I covered a similar topic a couple of years ago where we looked at our sin debt and then we made some applications to finances. But this time we're going straight for the, the topic. We're, we're going right at debt. Financial debt, I believe many people are saddled with it. In fact, I know they are. We shared last week that Connecticut, uh, people that live in Connecticut carry more credit card debt month to month than any other state. In the 50. And so this is a relevant sermon for our church. While I don't know who in here has it, I'm going to guess that many of you, if not most of you, deal with debt. And so we're going to talk about this topic. Uh, we started last week. We're going to look at it all August long. And uh, 2 Kings 4, Romans 13. I'll give you the title here in a moment. Let's read verse number 8 out loud together. Romans 13 and verse number 8. Are you there? Together. Here we go. Ready? Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. We're commanded here to owe no man anything. Turn over to 2 Kings 4 and look with me at verse 1 down through verse 7. Here we find a story of a woman who owed a debt and God did a miracle to help her out of that debt. 2 Kings 4. We'll begin reading together out loud in verse 1. We'll read every verse together uh, in, in, uh, in uh, uh, audible voice. I have the Spanish. Uh, I was going to say it in Spanish. I, I just got through teaching upstairs in Spanish, so I'm still getting in English mode here. But uh, uh, we'll read every other verse together responsibly down through verse number 7. Verse 1 together. Here we go. Ready? Now there cried a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets unto Elisha, saying... Thy servant, my husband, is dead, and thou knowest that thy servant did fear the Lord, and the creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. And Elisha said unto her, What shall I do for thee? Tell me, what, thou, what hast thou in the house? And she said, Thine handmaid hath not anything in the house, save a pot of oil. Verse 3, together. Then he said, Go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels, borrow not a few. And when thou art come in, thou shalt shut the door upon thee and upon thy sons, and shalt pour out into all those vessels, and thou shalt set aside that which is full. So she went from him and shut the door upon her and upon her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured out. And it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said unto her sons, Bring me yet a vessel. And he said unto her, There is not a vessel more. And the oil stayed. Then she came and told the man of God. And he said, Go, sell the oil and pay the debt. And live thou and thy children of the rest. We're looking at this uh, series dealing with debt. Let's look at this sermon title, The Captivity of Debt. Lord God, help us today as we... Uh, dive into the Word of God and look at some very practical, simple truths from your, word of, uh, from your Word. And Lord, help us to be free of debt. Free of debt that would bind us and free of debt that would limit us. Help us to understand freedom that's offered through the teaching of your Word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we began this series of sermons. We talked about the causes of debt. And we laid, laid out three main drivers of debt. We said that uh, there were three reasons, three main reasons why people get themselves into a deep financial hole. We said lack of financial margin. This is when your outgo is exceeding your income and you're spending more money than you have coming in. And if you're going to do that, we know this, that just basic math tells us that you're going to end up in debt. We looked at a lack of money management. Maybe you have enough income to pay your bills, but somehow the outgo still exceeds your income and month by month you're digging a hole deeper and deeper because you lack money management. The third reason we said is a lack 
of a contentment mentality. We're going to look at that one in quite a bit more depth today as we talk about, talk about captivity. Many of us, uh, if not all of us, at some point have made poor financial choices uh, in our adult lives. I shared my journey with you last week into debt and then out of debt and uh, the pressure and the captivity that I felt. This week we turn our attention and we look closely at debt's captivity. Let me share with you a story about a girl named Monica. Monica is 40 years old. Monica is single Monica is a lawyer, a good lawyer. She makes approximately $350,000 a year, yet Monica complains to a friend that she is unable to save any money, even though she really should. How many of you think Monica should have no problem saving money? Single, $40,000, $350,000 a year. But while this might sound ridiculous, um, you might think, with all that money, how could she not save? But the reality is that this is not a logical problem. This is an emotional problem. You see, to understand her emotional problem, you need to understand Monica's history. She grew up in a very, very poor family and uh, just got by on the very basics of life and fell into the comparison trap of seeing her friends have nicer things. And so when she got to be a teenager, she went out and got a job and began to make money with the idea of buying herself material goods to fit in with her friends. But she'd bring the check home from work and her dad would confiscate the money from her to help pay bills because money was tight. And so Monica developed a habit of getting money and spending it as quickly as possible because that was the only way in order for her to get the things is she needed to spend it before her father could get to it. So there's this emotional attachment with money of get it and spend it right away. Get it and spend it right away. And as a result, Monica never learned that when you have money, you don't have to spend it right away uh, or it will disappear. Now when she notices that she has money in her account, it creates an emotional reaction in her that causes her to run out and spend. It's not that she doesn't understand how a budget works because she does. It isn't that she hasn't tried. She has. It's that she hasn't addressed the emotional issues around money which are causing her to continue to struggle. And I'll make this point a little bit later in the message, but when I tell you that your outgo cannot exceed your income, every Everyone in here will shake their head up and down and say, logically, Pastor, I get it, but why is it that we still create a, a, a cash flow issue where our outgo does exceed our income? This is not a problem of logic. This is a problem of emotional captivity. The reality is that debt robs us of our freedom. When you spend more than you make, you uh, you cause those handcuffs to be clasped tighter and tighter and tighter. You cause the prison cell to get smaller and smaller and you cause that prison cell to be deeper and deeper within that prison compound and yet one more door that you have to try to walk through because it is getting worse and worse and worse. I made reference to this last week, but let me give you exactly the statistic here. The federal In the Federal Reserve's 2018 survey of household economics and decision making, and understand as we go year by year, these statistics do not get better, they get worse. So this is five years old. 40% of Americans said they would struggle to come up with $400 to pay for an unexpected expense. And 17% of households with an income of $100,000 or more said they would not be able to come up with $400 in a hurry. You're making $100,000 a year, north of $100,000 a year, and 17% say that they would not be able to get their hands on $400 cash if they had to. Let me help uh, illustrate this uh, for you with an anecdote from my childhood that you might find endearing and uh, I think, though, that this problem I had in my childhood is a microcosm or a smaller version of a greater problem that we all have. When I was a child, I loved... Now, I'd never seen this soda sold up here. In fact, I don't even see this soda sold uh, too many places anymore. But I loved to drink Bart's 
Red Cream Soda. Has anybody here ever had Bart's Red Cream Soda? Okay, there's a few of you. All right, I was down in Louisiana in May, and I happened to see it in a store, and I bought a bunch of it. Okay, I got so excited. How many see it? Something a relic from your childhood, and you get all excited about that. So I had an addiction to Bart's Red Cream Soda, and to make it worse, they sold it at in the vending machine. In my school, and how many of you are old enough to remember when you could put a quarter in a vending machine and get a 12-ounce soda? Raise your hand if you're old enough. I'm not, but I'm glad you are. Amen? Um, it cost 50 cents when I was a child, not a quarter, and uh, trapped you there. And so um, uh, every time I got money, I put it in that vending machine, and I would pour Bart's Red Cream Soda down my throat. And it was the most glorious 50 cents that I could spend while I was drinking that soda. I was so glad that I had put that money in that machine. And I must have put hundreds of dollars over the 10 years we lived there uh, in that machine. And you know what? Uh, every dollar I had, uh, I would put in that machine. If not every dollar, almost every dollar. And uh, there became a problem is that I had no source of income other than getting some birthday money or maybe someone would gift me some money. And so then what I would do is I'd walk around and I'd look for money and uh, on the floor and I would use that and, and I would check the change compartment to see if someone had put a dollar in the machine and left their money. And I was just an addict looking for my money to pay for this soda. It got so bad that when I'd run out of money and had a desire, I would rob my dad's change uh, compartment in his car. I had an addiction, folks. And uh, I would I would work that money out of his change drawer and I was methodical about it and careful about it. But one day my dad picked me up from a friend's house and he said, I've noticed that I've had some money go missing from this uh, change compartment here. Are you taking the money to buy yourself soda? I see you drinking a lot of soda. I don't know where you're getting the money. I got a big spanking when I got home that afternoon. And so I quit stealing money from my dad because I didn't want any spankings. Then I moved on to the next thing. I started borrowing money from classmates to be able to buy myself that soda. And i got to tell you, when I would borrow a dollar from a classmate, and I'd stick that in the machine, and I would drink those two sodas, while I was pouring that soda down my throat, I was glad I had borrowed that dollar. But lo and behold, a month or two later, I owed uh, John over here in class $2. And I owed Stephen over here $5. And, and I owed Bob over here $3. And, and I owed Jeremy over here $4. And now I'm coming to school and I owe all of my classmates money or many of my classmates money. And they're beginning to ask, hey, where's my $2? Hey, where's my five dollars? Hey, I, I loaned you I loaned you a dollar last week. You told me you'd have it back. Where's my money? And I did not have the income to satisfy the debt. And school became miserable for many reasons, because it was school, but it became miserable because I had to go face my creditors. I had to face those that I owed. Now, um, how many of you on a larger scale can relate to what I'm preaching this morning. How many of you know what it's like to borrow, to buy things that you want and don't need, and now the creditors keep calling and calling and calling, and you don't have the wherewithal to be able to satisfy your creditors? Many of us here today live in bondage to a financial creditor. And we've justified it. As though it's okay. Can I say this morning, Visa has become your master. You ever stop to think about the fact they call it MasterCard? You think that's an accident? MasterCard has become your master. A-Express, American Express, has become your master. And you are in debt. I uh, was talking to someone, I believe they worked at Sikorsky, and they told me people get hired here, and they get that big paycheck, and they run out and they buy an $80,000 truck. And now they've got this monthly payment that's almost the size of a mortgage. 
Can I tell you that a lot of you don't own your car. Your car owns you. You don't own that furniture. That furniture owns you. Now next week, we're going to look closely at the changes that need to be made to get out of debt. Because God wants you to live free of debt. For many of us, it's become such a regular part of our life, we just accept it. But God wants you to live free of debt. But uh, this week, we're going to look closely at debt's captivity. For many of you, I'll be preaching right where you live. For many of you, I'll be preaching what you're dealing with. If I had heard a sermon like this three or four years ago, it would have been exactly where I was living. I have lived in debt more of my adult life than I have been out of it. But for others of you, let this be a warning to stay away from this place of enslavement. How many of you know what it's like to go up to the counter in a box store and while you're checking out, they offer you a credit card? You know what I'm like? Satan! Stay away from me! You know, I, I don't know. It's almost like they have horns that are growing out of their head. Whether, would you like to save 10% today and sign up for our credit card? You know, it's like, get away from me, you're the devil. And uh, I, uh, I have given many cashiers a speech on why credit cards are no bueno. Amen? And uh, stay away from the credit cards. And uh, I, uh, I, uh, for some of you today, this might just be a reminder to you uh, to uh, continue on the path that you're already on. I propose today, listen close to this statement, that money is either an incredible servant or it is a horrible master. Money is either an incredible servant or a horrible master. All of us in here today experience money one of two ways. For you, money is a servant that's working on your behalf and bettering your lives. But for many of you here today, if not the majority of you here today, Money is a horrible master because you owe and owe and owe and you've dug a deep hole and you don't know what to do with it. Many are under the bondage of financial debt. They take it on in order to look like something they aren't or eat food that they can't afford or drive something that is above their pay grade. We become heavy laden with consumer debt It is very much like living in a prison cell. But I'm here today to tell you that you can break free from consumer debt. And you can feel like a bird being let out of its cage. Let's jump into the sermon notes this morning and notice three thoughts as we continue our series dealing with debt. And we look closely at this title of Debt's Captivity or the Captivity of debt. Let's jump in this morning and notice point number one. Let's talk about types of debt. Types of debt. Back in Romans 13, where we began this morning in verse 8, we're told, Owe no man anything. Now, a strict interpretation of this verse would mean that you can never ever take out a loan ever and that um, owe no man anything. The strict uh, definition would mean that you have to pay cash for everything and you wouldn't even be able to take out a mortgage. You'd just be expected to buy a home in cash. And for many of us uh, here today, uh, we understand that that's not what Romans 13.8 means. I don't believe anyway that's what that means. Rather, what it means is that you are to meet the terms of the loan. Okay, listen closely. If you agreed on the dotted line that you were going to pay that bill by the 28th of the month, then to pay it on the 1st of the month would be you owing uh, something that uh, you didn't pay on time. And you would be in violation of Romans 13.8. Many of you have a mortgage, and when you signed on the dotted line, watch this now, you gave your word that on the 1st of the month, that mortgage would be paid. Now, most mortgage companies give you a grace period to the 15th, where they don't penalize you, but can I say that on the 16th of the month, if you've not paid that mortgage, you owe. You didn't meet the terms. You didn't keep your word. You didn't keep your word. And we're not being honest. And we're in violation of Romans 13, verse 8. Types of debt. Now, many preachers uh, try to make debt a matter of moral and immoral, right or wrong. 
And I don't believe that that's biblical. I think that's lazy, alright? I think some debt is immoral. And we're going to lay out what debt is immoral today or what debt is wrong. Uh, but I believe that not all debt is that way. So let me break it down for you like this. Letter A, notice, some debt is necessary. Some debt is necessary. Look back with me at 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 3. 2 Kings 4 verse 3. Then he said, go borrow thee. Now notice here that uh, this lady is in debt. And uh, Elisha is telling her to borrow further. Go borrow the vessels abroad of all thy neighbors, even empty vessels. Borrow not a few. So, to recap the story here, and I'm going to try to keep this in context with the message, but to recap the story here, uh, Elijah started what we believe to be a Bible college, or a college meant to train um, uh, preachers. And Elisha inherited the role of running that Bible college. Elisha was the protege to Elijah, the, uh, the, the, the predecessor, or the, rather the successor to Elijah. And so Elisha is in charge of this Bible school, and there are two of his preacher boys who come to him with their mother, and the mother is now a widow. Her husband has died, and the widow says, hey, listen, we owe money to a creditor, and we can't make payment, and the collateral for the loan was that my two boys would become bondmen or slaves if the debt was not met, uh, the terms of the, of the uh, loan was not met, and we can't meet the terms of the loan, and we need your help. And so Elijah says to her, well, what do you have in your house? And she says, well, I have some oil. I have oil in my home. And he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You're already in debt. Go ask all your neighbors and all your friends if you can borrow vases, empty vases, and get them in your house. And I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to allow you to take that little thing of oil you have and pour it into these vases. And each time you pour it, uh, it will keep pouring until every vase is full and then you can go sell that oil and have the income to completely pay off your debt. And so the woman went and borrowed all of the vases that she could and she poured that out and she uh, sold out that sold off that oil and was able to pay her debt. God did a miracle. Now notice that she's already in debt and Elisha's command is borrow further in order to get out of debt. Now, to be fair, she's not borrowing money, but she is borrowing that which does not belong to her in order to solve her problem. So turn over with me if you would to Deuteronomy 15. I'm going to make a case from the Bible this morning that borrowing is not always a sin and that taking out a loan is not always wrong. Look at Deuteronomy 15 with me and look at verse number 7. Verse number 7 there. Notice it says, If there be any be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren within any of thy gates in the land, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thine heart nor shut thine hand from thy poor neighbor. Look at verse 8. Here's the command. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shalt surely lend him sufficient, look at these next three words, for his need, in that which he wanteth, in that which he lacketh. So you're to lend him sufficient for his need. Notice that this is for his need. Let me explain to you how this wants. How do you know if someone has a need? Alright? Example. Someone comes to you and says, I can't pay my light bill. But you see them with Dunkin' Donuts and Starbucks cups all the time. Or you happen to notice them coming out of Longhorn Steakhouse. Right? With a toothpick in their mouth. Alright? Okay? Should you be giving to pay their light bill when they're wasting money on things that are wants and not needs? You know how to pay the light bill? Take the money you're spending at restaurants, eat at home, and pay your bills. You with me? I'm helping you this morning. If you have a financial need and you come see Pastor Lejeune, to get some benevolence funds to help you pay your bills, as sometimes people do, I'm going to ask you how you spend your money. Because there are people in this room that contribute to our church's benevolence fund, and it would be irresponsible of me to fund your poor habits. 
Now, let's look back at the verse here. Look back at verse 8. Lend him sufficient for his need. So here we're being commanded to loan money to those who are in need. Notice that if it is not a sin to lend money, then it cannot be a sin to receive the money. Are we together this morning? Does that make logical sense? So for someone to say it's a sin to take a loan goes in direct conflict with Deuteronomy 15 verse 8. Turn over to Deuteronomy 23. Lending is commanded, even commanded in certain situations. Therefore, borrowing or going into debt cannot always be a sin. God knows the greediness, however, within the heart of sinful man. And so He sets parameters around loaning money, especially to a brother in need. Look at Deuteronomy 23 and look at verse 19. Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money or interest, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all that thou settest thine hand to in the land, whither thou goest to possess it. So here the Lord tells uh, the Israelites through the pen of Moses that if you're going to loan money to a brother, do not charge interest. If you're going to loan money to a stranger, you can charge interest, but do not charge interest if you're loaning money to a stranger. You're to loan to them to help them out of a bad spot, not take advantage of them. Uh, turn over to Luke chapter 6, if you're able to. Luke 6 and verse 34. So here the Bible raises the standard. Uh, the uh, Lord Jesus, under a period of grace, raises the standard from just lend and expect back to lend and don't even expect to get it back when you do lend. Look at Luke 6, verse 34. The Bible says, And if ye lend to them of hope, whom ye hope to receive, what think have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love ye your enemies. So now we're not just loving our brother. We're loving our enemies. And do good. And lend. So that means there's an agreement that you're going to give and get it back. Lend, hoping or expecting for nothing again. And your reward shall be great. And ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. So, um, here's a basic principle that I live my life by. You listening? I, I hope you're listening. Because this will really help somebody this morning. I never, ever lend money to anyone and expect to get it back. Ever. Now, let's say that uh, Joey comes up to me. Joey is always in every illustration. Amen? Every made-up illustration. Let's say Joey comes to me and says, Pastor Lejeune, I'm really on hard times and... And, uh, and I need $100. And so I, you know, I ask Joey a bunch of questions. I interrogate him and I find out, you know what? Joey's responsible with money and, and Joey really is, you know, he's just hitting hard times here. And so, you know what, Joey? I'm going to extend to you $100 right here. You know what I'm going to tell Joey? I'm going to say, Joey, that's yours. I'm not looking to get it back. Oh, I'm going to get it to you. I'm not talking about this Joey back here. I just made up a name. That just happens to be your name. Amen? All right. Uh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give it to you if I have it to give. If I have it to give. If I don't have it to give, I can't give you what I don't have, right? But I'm going to give it to you if I have it, and I'm going to say to you, you know what, I'm not looking for that back. I've had people through the years who I've given money to in that manner who they do return the money. And I'm thankful that they return the money. But you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to let it hurt our relationship. How many of you here ever loan money to somebody, and then the next thing you know, they're avoiding you at every turn? You know what I'm talking about? It's almost like they missed church four weeks in a row and they saw the pastor at Walmart, right? They run the other direction. Oh, I don't, don't want to see him, right? And uh, you loan money to somebody and the next thing you know, they, they want nothing to do with you. They, they, they begin to not return your text messages or, or to talk to you. And so it hurts relationships when you lend and expect it back. So what I'm getting at this morning is that some debt is necessary. Let me... Um, let me say this. Uh, here's some questions you can ask yourself before you take out a loan. And this is not 
Scripture, right? This is uh, Pastor Lejeune's opinion mixed with just good old common sense. But let me encourage you to write these things down and, and you can consider these, okay? Questions to ask yourself before you take out a loan. Number one, does this loan provide for a need or a want? Does this loan provide for a need or a want? And we're going to go over a list of what is a need and what is a want here in a moment, but you need to ask yourself that hard question. And you know what? Sometimes we have needs, but we borrow to upscale them, and we mix needs and wants. You do need to, 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 to afford housing. So you may take out a loan to buy a home. But can I tell you that when a two-bedroom house would, uh, would be fine, you don't need to take out extra money that you can't afford in order to live in a four-bedroom house. Right? You need to be content with what serves the need and not what provides necessarily for a want. Number two, number two, do I currently have more than enough to pay the terms of the loan? Do I currently have more than enough or make more than enough income to pay the terms of the loan? All right, I've seen people and I've really justifiably uh, justified my actions in the past and made this mistake. You know what? Uh, I think we could afford that monthly payment if uh, we cut this out and we cut that out. We should be able to barely squeeze by and pay that bill. Or here's one people say, you know what? If I get a Christmas bonus this year, then it will work. Or come tax time, I'll be able to satisfy the terms of the loan. How many of you know you should not uh, use money that isn't guaranteed to pay against something uh, that you'd borrow. And so make sure that you have margin when you borrow that money. Make sure there's margin there to be able to pay the terms of the loan. You should be able to pay that each month and have margin left over in your budget. Or maybe don't take out the loan. Number three, number three, uh, ask yourself this question. Could I delay the purchase, save the money, and pay for this same item in cash? Could I delay the purchase, save the money, and pay for this item in cash? You go to the car dealership, and you think, oh, man, that, I, that new car smell is, mm, I have to, I, I want, I, I need. And, and we begin to justify, right? And we think, well, you know what? A seven-year loan at $350 a month or $400 a month I could I could see us swinging that I could see, but watch this now. What if you were to make a car payment to yourself for four years at four hundred dollars a month, and take that money and just auto transfer it to an account you don't touch, and once four years had passed and you're setting four hundred, you say, well, I can't afford to do that. Guess what? Then you can't afford that car loan. If you can afford the car loan, then you can afford to pay that car payment to yourself every month for four years. And then you know what you do? You drive a clunker for four years, and then you take the money you've set aside, and you walk into that car dealership, and you hand them a check for the car, and you walk out with no, no payments. So can you delay the purchase, save the money, and pay for this same item in cash? Um, so the number one... Uh, sensible item, sensible item that most people buy uh, on a loan is their home. How many of you here owe money on a mortgage right now? Raise your hand if you owe money on a mortgage. Did you know that the word mortgage means death payment? That's literally what it means is death payment. The idea is that you're going to pay this all the way to the grave. In Europe, some loans go 80 to 120 years and you pass that on to your children and your grandchildren. And uh, here in America, we've tried to keep it to 30 or 40 years. If you're able to refinance into a 15-year, uh, then that's obviously better. But uh, that death payment, and so that is the most common. Uh, here's, some, here's some good advice for you. Again, disclaimer, I am not a financial advisor. I am a pastor. So keep that in mind as I preach this, uh, or as I, as I give these concepts here. Number one, write this down. I don't know that they'll be on the screen, but write this down. You'd be wise to keep uh, your monthly payments to 30% or less. You'd be wise to keep your monthly payments to 30% or less 
of your income, okay? So 30% less of your monthly income. You'd be wise to keep it there. Once you get over 30%, boy, the belt really gets tight and things get tough and that's where we end up swiping credit cards. Number two, don't buy more square footage than you can afford to upkeep. Don't buy more square footage than you can afford to upkeep. I had a job back in 2014 where I inspected homes that had been foreclosed on by the bank. I was a 1090 pay, self-employed. I'd go around and, and I would take pictures of homes that the bank had taken back by foreclosures. It was really sad seeing these beautiful homes just decay and crumble because the banks oftentimes were neglecting them. But one uh, assignment I had was to go down right outside of Washington, D.C., in the suburbs, and take pictures of these mansions that the bank had taken back. And there were homes I'd go into that would have five and six bedrooms where each bedroom had its own full bath with a bathtub and all of it. And there'd be two or three living rooms and giant chandeliers and greeting areas and humongous kitchens. These homes were two, three, four, five million dollars and had been repossessed by the bank and I'm walking through them. And you know what? I'd walk around homes, even smaller homes that were 4,000, 5,000 square feet and, and I would think to myself as I'm taking pictures of the outside of this home, I would never want to live in something like this. Do you know what the utilities cost on a home like this? You would need a butler or a maid just full-time maintenance of, of the landscape and, and, and all the repairs that go on. And, and, and can you imagine just the maintenance bill? And so when you go to buy a home, you need to keep in mind that there are bills that are going to come along with ownership of that place. Keep those things in mind. So uh, another item of non-consumer debt maybe would be a car loan. Did you know that today the average new car car loan is now seven years. You sign a seven-year agreement. How many of you remember when it was three or four years? And then it went to five years. And then it went to six years. Now they're giving seven-year loans out. And you know who wins on a seven-year loan? The bank does, because now you're paying more in finance charges. You buy a car for $40,000 and pay that over seven years. Once you get done paying that off, how much have you paid the bank in interest? Fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000. That $40,000 car is now, and again, I'm, I'm spitballing here. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. But now you're looking at sixty-five dollars to $70,000 that you've paid, dollars to $60,000 rather, that you've paid for a car because you didn't save the money and do it in a way that was disciplined. So just some reminders for you about a car. Listen to this. The purpose of a car is simply to get you from A to B. Not to impress everyone at the red light or to impress everyone in the parking lot of the church. Ooh. Ah. Ooh la la. That's pretty. Mwah. All right, that's not the point. Um, listen, buying a brand new car is often unnecessary. You can get a used car with just 20, 30, 40,000 miles on it and save thousands of dollars. All right? All right, here's another thought. Consider a clunker while you save up cash for something better. Um, how many understand that owning a clunker means you save a lot of money every year when you pay the car tax? Amen, right? And uh, when I moved here, I drove a 1997 Honda Accord. The car was 19 years old when I moved here. And you know what? The car taxes on that thing were, voila, they were great. Uh, so uh, owning an old car uh, has its advantages. Okay, so uh, some debt is necessary. Letter B, notice most debt is unnecessary. Most debt is unnecessary. Now, I'm going to step on some toes for a few minutes, but I'm going to do it in love. But sometimes for change, we need our toes stepped on. Philippians 4.19. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. Philippians is my favorite book in the New Testament. Love the book of Philippians. Philippians 4.19. But my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory, by Christ Jesus. New Englanders have a hard time knowing the difference between needs and wants. We just do. Hey folks, 
we've learned to live like kings and queens. And we have made our comforts necessities when they're not necessities. Um, we have our box store credit cards. Uh, we, uh, Angela and I got out of, uh, she, I, I wish you would come in five minutes later, Angela. She just walked in because I'm going to tell a story about you here. Um, we, uh, we got out of credit card debt uh, some time back and cut up all the cards. I shared that story last year. And uh, I was uh, giving some instruction to someone with Angela present about not having credit cards. And we get in the car to, to drive home and she says, I need to tell you something. I said, what's that? She said, I was at JCPenney and I, I, uh, I took out a credit card. I said, you did what? <laughs> Call and cancel that thing right now. <laughs> box store credit cards. Box store credit cards. And uh, we, uh, we, well, yeah, I'll buy it on credit. Amazon's buy now, pay later. Buy now, pay later. Hey, you know what? Six easy installments of, I like how they put the word easy in front of that. Six easy, yeah, it's easy for them to take your money, isn't it? Walmart and Target cards. And we justify this, right? Well, I need toilet paper, and, and, and I need soap, and, 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 and I need makeup, and, and, and I need, I need uh, th- this item. Yeah, but you don't need the 13 dresses you picked up, and you, you don't need that big screen TV you went, but it's on sale, and, and we justify. Buy now, pay later. Walmart, Target, credit cards. Listen, listen to me. Listen to me. Listen closely. You don't need cable TV. You don't need it. Or any of the subscription services. You don't need a large flat screen TV. You don't need it. You don't need designer clothes or designer purses. You don't need it. You may want it, but you don't need it. You don't need that top-of-the-line cologne or perfume so you can walk around with your swag. You don't need it. Right? You may want it, but you don't need it. You don't need top-of-the-line makeup, ladies. You don't. You say, well, I need makeup. I'm not arguing. But you don't need top-of-the-line makeup. Amen? You don't need a luxury watch. You don't need it. You don't need a flagship smartphone. Now listen, a lot of people, they have to have the latest, greatest phone that just came out so you can do what? Scroll through Facebook and TikTok? Did you know a budget phone will scroll through just the same? You don't need a flagship smartphone. You don't need to eat out. Listen, you don't need to eat out ever. You don't ever need to eat out. I'm not saying it's wrong to eat out. But you don't need to eat out. I told the Spanish ministry, we were talking about entitlement in uh, Sunday school this morning. And I told the Spanish church that sometimes my kids will, Dad, can we go out to eat? And I, I play a trick on them. I say, you don't like your mom's cooking? Are, are, you compl- are you saying mom's cooking? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just, oh, you like eating, you like, you like the restaurant's food more than your mom's food, don't you? Don't you? Don't you? Don't. And so I give them a hard time. But you don't need to eat out. Americans waste so much money at restaurants. You don't need, oh man, this one, oh, this one's going to hurt. You don't need to run your AC or heat at 70 degrees. You don't need to. You know what? If you're cold, go put on a sweater. Amen? If you're warm, tough. (laughs) It's only so much you can take off. Tough, right? Uh, But, um, you know, uh, it's 67 degrees in the house. I'm freezing. Can we? No. You know, quit being a coddled. um, Anyway, I'm not going to call anybody names. Um, You don't need two vehicles. Oh, we need two vehicles. It might be convenient to have two vehicles, but you can make it work. How many of you have inconveniently made one vehicle work at seasons of time in your life? Alright, you know what I'm talking about here. You don't need two vehicles. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. We are spoiled rotten with life's comforts. Now, if you can afford these things, then afford them. If you can pay for these things, then pay for them. Sometimes they make life better. Sometimes they raise our quality of life. 
But you don't have to have them. And listen to me, listen to me. When you're willing to go into debt to have a want over a need, you have crossed the line from necessary debt to unnecessary debt. And you've crossed the line from moral debt to immoral debt. You've crossed the line from right into wrong. You say, Pastor, back that up with the Bible. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For He hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I believe many of us today carry credit card balances because we're swiping for wants, 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 and then we end up enslaved to Visa and MasterCard and American Express. Ben Franklin in his uh, book, Poor Richard's Almanac, once said this. It's a great quote. uh, Contentment makes poor men rich. And discontentment makes rich men poor. Many of you here today are poor, and it's not, and I mean financially poor, because you keep buying things that you can't afford. Number one, types of debt. Number two, the traps of debt. The traps of debt. Now, we're going to talk about how you get played. Turn over to Amos chapter 8 and verse number 4. Amos chapter 8 and verse number 4. Every marriage, there seems to be someone who is a penny pincher and someone who is a penny spender. There are those who hold on tight to the money and those of you who like to spend the money. What's bad is when you get a marriage where you have two people who like to spend money. And it's spend, 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 and there's not any left. How many of you here are willing to admit that you are the one who likes to spend? Raise your hand. If you're the one that likes to spend, raise your hand. If you're the one that likes to save. All right. Now, all of you, raise your hand if this has created conflict in your home at some point. Be honest. Be honest. All right. I am the spender. Angela is more of the saver, even though she took out a credit card. Amen? Uh, She's more of the saver. I'm more of the spender. And listen, we need to come together on these things. All right? Look look with me at Amos chapter 8. Let's talk about letter A, the advertisement trap. Amos 8, look at verse number 4. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail. So there's a structure in place that keeps the poor in poverty. Verse 5, saying, When will the new moon be gone, that we, will, that we may sell corn? And the Sabbath day, that we may get forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel great, and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes. Yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord hath sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will not forget any of their works. So, uh, again, without giving total context to the book of Amos here and who he was and, and, and all of that this was written to, let me just say very narrowly that what is going on here is that you have the rich in Israel who are keeping the poor in Israel in poverty through a set of schemes. And I look at our country today and I see the same thing in place. We have the rich preying on the poor. And here's how they do it. They use high interest rates to hold the poor into poverty and, 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 and create some form of a caste system to keep people down. Do you know that the lottery is a scheme of the rich to keep the poor in poverty. I had a I had a someone tell me just yesterday that that he works at a grocery store and that on uh, Friday or whatever it was last week sometime before the the mega millions jackpot was won that he had somebody stand he stood there in the same place for 4 hours and sold lottery tickets to people nonstop for 4 hours and he said every person in that line was obviously poor. And they're handing over $50 bills, hoping to hit their big payday. You know what that does? The lottery keeps is a tax on the poor. It's a scheme to keep the poor in poverty and help the rich get richer. And let me just say this, by principle, not by biblical conviction, but by biblical principle. Listen to me this morning. Sports gambling is becoming a problem in our country. I believe... This is, this is my biblical principle. I believe that Christians should not be involved in sports gambling. I think that's a slippery slope that will ruin your life. Stay out of that stuff. Now, credit card companies are predatory in nature. 
This is the classic example. Throw that next slide up there for me. Of the carrot on the stick for the donkey. What ends up happening is you get whacked by the stick and you never get the carrot. Here's what they'll tell you. Sign up for our credit card and we'll give you 40,000 points. You'll earn 1% back on every transaction, 2% back on groceries, and 3% back on dining and gas purchases. And so we think, ooh, I get a penny back for every $100 I spend? Ooh, all right, let's go for it. In Vegas, they have a phrase. In the end, the house always... Yeah. And with credit card companies, the reality is that the credit card companies almost always win. And if they win, you lose. You understand this? Now, uh, this week I took Matthew to uh, the bank to open up a teen checking account. And we're sitting there um, at the desk and there's... um, um, the banker, nice lady, but in the beginning, she was just doing her job, very professional, and um, a little, you know, uh, I'm looking to converse and, and get past the, you know, the professional talk and, and really work into getting to know her. I wanted to invite her to church, and, and I did invite her. She very well may come. Very nice lady, very, very, uh, very courteous and professional, and, and uh, was very uh, accommodating to what we were doing there, but looking for a way to begin conversation, I look and on her desk is a uh, a set of credit cards that they offer people. And lo and behold, one of the credit cards was the one that I took that ruined my life. And I'm like squirming in my chair, you know, having PTSD, looking at this card and oh, get that away from me. So in order to be in conversation, I just simply asked her. I said, uh, "What are uh, what is your personal opinion about credit cards?" And she started into her spiel, which she's doing her job, but she started in on her spiel about how credit cards are good and, and how they can help you and how you can earn these points. And, and she's, she's trying to sell it to me and Matthew. And, and so I got wait, waited for you about halfway through what she had to say, and there was an entry point. And so I pushed back on what she was saying. And, and I could tell I was giving her things to think about that she had never thought about before, about how credit cards maybe aren't so great. And... Gave her some resources and things to look at uh, afterwards. And we got in the car, and I said to Matthew, I said, what did you think about that credit card conversation? And he said, I, I really didn't know what to think. I said, well, let me, let me lay it out for you like this. And, and some of you really need to hear this, all right? Here's how credit cards work. You listening closely? Because what we do is we swipe, and then we just move on with our life. And we're, 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 we're geared toward using this. Here's how this works. When you swipe your card and don't pay that balance off by the end of the month, in essence, the bank is loaning you money to make interest off of you. However, when you're disciplined and you save your money and then you invest that toward a bank, then you make money off of them. Would you rather make money with your money or would you rather them make money off of you? So when we're swiping credit cards and running the risk of not paying that every month, we are enriching them. Now, I'm going to share some statistics here that will blow blow you away. According to uh, Statista.com, all right, 30 point, put the next slide up there, $30.75 billion will be spent this year alone on financial product advertisement. Credit card companies will spend almost $31 billion trying to convince you to take out a credit card. And let me tell you, they're good. How many credit card uh, advertisements do you get in the mail? You ever notice how well they're colored? How well they're laid out? How enticing they are? How they put those perks right there on the front? You ever notice the commercials on TV? How much does it pay Samuel L. Jackson to appear in all of these Capital One, he's not cheap. 31, and this this, uh, number is not talking about retirement. $31 billion. This is not talking about retirement products uh, or any of that sort of stuff. This is simply talking about credit cards. You think, well, if they're spending $31 billion, how much are they making? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
according to projections, credit card companies are estimated to make to make a hundred and twenty billion dollars this calendar year on interest and fees. So that means for every dollar they're spending, they're making four dollars off of you. Well, I'll be disciplined and I'll pay that off every month. Yeah, probably not. I remember that uh, when we, Angel and I first got married, we got into some credit card debt. And then uh, we got a new job at a different church and, and we're able to, with our income, pay that credit card off. And for about six months, we paid off, uh, we, we lived on the money that came in the bank. I like to word it this way. We moved at the flow of cash. We just simply spent what we had and not another dime. And after six months of doing this, we never had any money left over because we were, uh, I was not wise in how I managed it. But, but nonetheless, we only spent what we had. And after six months, I went to Angela and I said, you know what? Chase has this credit card called the Sapphire. Some of you have that one in your wallet right now. The Chase Sapphire card. And you know what? I think that if we sign up for this card, we'll just pay all our bills with this. And then um, we'll, um, you know what? We'll, um, we'll have all these points. And she said, if you think we can do it, I trust you, go for it. Well, you know what I found out is that I get to the end of the week and I wouldn't have any money for us, but we wanted to go out to eat. So, whoop. And you know what I'm out and about? And I really want that, uh, that Whopper deal at Burger King. Whoop. And a uh, co-worker says, hey, let's go out and get a Dunkin' Donuts during a break. Okay, whoop. And the next thing you know, I'm not able to pay that balance every month. I have fallen in the trap and they're making money off of me. It's predatory in nature. Now, this does not even include, talking about the advertisement trap, this does not even include all the money spent on store psychology. Have you ever noticed where they put the bread and the milk in the grocery store? They put it in the back corner. Do you know why? Because they want you to walk all the way through their store twice. And they spend millions of dollars every year. Big box stores spend millions of dollars every year figuring out which products are the highest impulse buy and those get the end caps. So you walk by and you walk to the back, you get your milk and your eggs and they're trying to wiggle every dollar they can out of your pocket before you leave that store. The odds, or rather the deck is stacked against you. Millions of dollars have been spent to understand color psychology. So they know what color to make the packaging to get you to pick it up and buy it. Did you know that the color maroon makes people hungry? That's why the McDonald's sign is maroon. Because they know you're driving down the road and you feel hungry, you see maroon, you're likely to pull in. Billions and billions served largely off of the color maroon. Now, if you ever pay attention, when we have food after church on a Sunday morning, I wear a maroon tie in the pulpit. (laughs) All right? Using that to my advantage. Um, So, here's what we have against us. We're enticed to spend all of the money we have, and when we run out of money, to spend money we don't have so that we can be enslaved to debt. And that is how the ad market works. I'll move on. I've got more to say here, but we'll move on. Letter B, notice the cosine trap. The cosine trap. Turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse number 1. Proverbs 6. Please, I ask you to turn over here. Proverbs 6. Look with me at verse 1. My son, if thou be surety, that means, the the word surety just means to cosine. If thou be a cosine or surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger... You made a deal with someone on behalf of your friend. Thou art snared with the words of thy mouth. Thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. Do this now, my son, and deliver thyself. When thou thou art come into the hand of thy friend, go, humble thyself, and make sure thy friend. Give not sleep to thine eyes, nor slumber to thine eyelids. Deliver thyself as a roe from the hand of the hunter, and as a bird from the hand of the fowler. So again, the word surety here means to co-sign on a loan. You know what Solomon tells us here? He says, don't do it! Don't co-sign loans! Can I just tell you this morning that uh, there are a couple of ways you can co-sign a loan. Number one, co-sign a loan if you're prepared to pay the whole thing. If you're not, don't do it. 
Someone comes to you and says, ah, you know what, I have the money and I have the income, but I just don't have the, uh, uh, they're not approving me unless I get someone to co-sign. And you go in and say, all right, I'll co-sign for you. It's just a formality. It's not a formality. If you sign the dotted line, they're going to come calling on you and you're going to have to pay it. So don't do it unless you're ready to pay. And then the second thing I'd say here is that if you do co-sign, don't let it ruin a friendship. Let's say here that I go to Dave down here on the front row and I say, Dave, I can't get a proof of this loan and, and I need you to co-sign for me. And if you'll co-sign, I promise I'll carry the weight of it and pay it. And lo and behold, I get hurt at work and, and I lose my job and I don't have the ability to do it. And now he's on the hook for it. You know what? If he agreed to sign that, he cannot let that hurt our friendship. He's not supposed to let that hurt our friendship. He's supposed to be willing to pay it and say, you know what? I, I, that's what I was signing up for. So... The cosine trap. Don't fall into the cosine trap. I sent my notes over to Brother Joe this week for him to get uh, ready for the bulletin in the screen. And he looked over my notes and he said, Well, I've got a letter C for you under number two, Pastor Lejeune. And he said, What if your parents set you up to fail? Do we call that the parent trap? All right. So there's a Brother Joe joke. Number three, lastly, notice the thralls of debt. The thralls of debt. And that word thrall is a perfect word. Not only because it starts with the letter T, but that word thrall involves bondage on an emotional level. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says this, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Did you hear that? The rich rule over the poor. The borrower is servant to the lender. The borrower, servant to the lender. When you owe someone money, you are in debt to them. They are your ruler, and you are their servant. I know what it's like to be saddled with debt. Well, I was not in a jail cell. It sure felt like the weight of all that debt had locked me up in chains. I'm gonna, I want you to participate this morning. Listen up here. How many of you either now or at some time in your life know what it means to feel like you are in jail over the debt that you owe? Would you raise your hand if at some point in your life or currently you have felt that? All right. So the rest of you are all financially responsible and have been your whole life. I'm very impressed. I mean that. I'm very impressed. I, I sure thought more people would raise their hand. Letter A, notice physical bondage. Physical bondage. Well, for the rest of you, you'll know what I mean when I preach this. I'm not going to reread the passage. But 2 Kings 4, again, tells us about this lady. Tells us about this lady who had set herself up uh, to be uh, a, a, in a, a, a physical bondage. In fact, they were coming to put her boys in prison, in debtor's prison, in order to pay that back. Now, many people, uh, they, uh, while there's not, look, our system's not set up to where if you don't pay your bills, they're going to come lock you up in debtor's prison. But you know what they will do? They'll garnish your wages. Is that not physical captivity? They're seizing your bank account. Okay? How about this one? You've got to work two or three jobs to pay off your poor spending habits. And now your health begins to tank because you are physically strapped down to debt. You pillow your head at night and you toss and turn because your own home feels like a jail cell because you've got to make that mortgage payment every month. Many people, they have health problems because of the stress of their debt. Physical bondage. Letter B, notice, emotional bondage. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now there cried a certain woman. Does that mean that she uh, uh, spoke out loud or that she wept? I believe it means both. If you look at this verse, you see the emotional toll that bondage was taking, uh, that rather that, um, that, right, the bondage of debt was taking on her. Uh, the end of the verse says, The creditor is come to take unto him my two sons to be bondmen. I'm at risk of losing my own children into slavery because of the weight of this debt. Can you feel her emotional anguish? Turn over to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. I made this statement last week that each month your outgo should exceed your income. And I made it again today. This statement is very obvious and everyone here knows it to be factual. Then why don't we do it? We don't do it because we allow our emotions to control our buying. We buy things we cannot afford. This is the textbook definition of covetousness. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. 
nor as manservants, nor as maidservants, nor as ox, nor as ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, back when this verse was written, to covet just meant you wanted it, but you couldn't have it. And, you know, that created problems. Maybe getting it involves stealing it. Can I tell you what covetousness is today? If you want your neighbor's house, and you, it, then what you do is you take out a loan and you just buy it. Just go buy one, just like it. If you want your neighbor's car, you just, you just take out a loan and you go buy your neighbor's car. And we end up in this trap, this trap. And the next thing you know, we're sitting deep in debt because we're buying things we can't afford. Covetousness oftentimes leads us into debt and emotional bondage. Letter C and lastly, spiritual bondage. Let's look at two passages here in, uh, in the uh, Minor Prophets. Malachi and Haggai. Let's go to Malachi first. Turn over to the book of Matthew. Turn back one book to the left. You'll be in Malachi. Matthew, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. And look at verse number 10. All right? Malachi 3, 10, and 11. The emphasis is going to be on 11. All right? And then we're going to look at Haggai 1. Now, to, the, to, you, to, you, to you Bible uh, people who are very technical with Scripture, I, I, I seek to be one of those. I'm making an application out of these verses, not an interpretation. So bear with me. This is an application. Look at verse 10. Bring ye all the tithes in the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Look at verse 11. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes. He shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. So, watch this. There is a devourer that goes around destroying your efforts to get ahead. He's destroying your efforts to get ahead because your priorities are out of order. You're chasing down things that you can't afford to maintain an image that's a lie. And as a result, the devourer is eating your lunch. Turn over to Haggai chapter 1. Just a few books back to the left there from Malachi. Haggai chapter 1. And look at verse number 5. Now, this isn't talking about those who neglect the need at the church house as they're taking care of their own house and building a beautiful home for themselves while the church goes neglected. Look at Haggai chapter 1 and look at verse number 5. Due to time, I'm going to begin reading. Those of you still turning, catch up when you get there. Verse 5. Now, therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, look at these next three words, Consider your ways. Oh, those are three wonderful words. Ye have so much and bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it in a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. So, Scripture commands us to give God what's first, but most, of, most Christians end up giving God what's left, and oftentimes there is either nothing left or very little left. We end up putting our money in a bag of holes, we end up with the devourer eating our lunch, and we don't ever have enough money to pay our bills, and we are in spiritual, financial, uh, emotional, physical bondage, because you, no matter how much money you make, you just can't keep up. Maybe it's because you're in spiritual bondage, because you've ignored God's commands, and you're living in bondage. Now, last week and this week, we laid out the problem. We looked at the causes of debt. Last week, we've looked at the captivity of debt. Over the next two weeks, we're going to lay out the solution. We're going to talk about changes that you can make to get out of debt. And then the last week, we'll look at what it's like to stand on top of that mountain and actually have money in the bank and be free and get to live life with freedom. I'm going to show you what that looks like. God desires for us to live free of bondage and to know liberty in Him. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed this morning.